This show is brought to you by Cakes and Tins, where you can send the people you adore delightful and delicious gifts that give back. Go to cakesintins.com and use the code ACTINGREAL for 10% off. This show is also brought to you by LA Bookmaker, a deluxe stationery shop and custom bookbinder, offering handmade foil stamped cards, high quality calendars, and other ephemeral gifts. Go to la-bookmaker.com. Our clarity story today comes from my very good friend and uh, just such a powerful and wise woman, uh, Natasha Cessary. She writes, I have realized that my body is simply not the most interesting thing about me. It is not the thing that leads me to bold decision or to flirt with a stranger or to get down into the dark with someone and hold their hand while they grieve. After spending years dieting and trying to control my size, after waging an ongoing war against my intractable waistline, I just got tired and I recognized this isn't it. The belief that my body is what's in the way was simply not holding water anymore. If anything, that single belief was the thing stopping me from expansion. What if I am good right now? What if I am valuable right now? And then the stunning domino thought that came from that almost leveled me. What if this constant pursuit of thinness is simply something to hold me off from really claiming for myself the huge life that is available to me? What if the notion of otherness in all its forms is itself the enemy? I stopped putting my life on hold. I started acting as if I was a welcome member of every room, that I had something to offer that people wanted right now. It started to work. The more I allow myself, not my body, to be the focus, the more I am able to celebrate exactly who I am. I challenge anyone who related to this to ask themselves the question today. What am I putting off until I look different? What if I knew my body was going to stay exactly the way it is now forever? What would I do differently? And then go do that. Natasha Cessary is a life and business coach, performer, and writer living in Seattle. Her mission is to help people expand and transform their lives through compassion, courage, and dynamic action. To learn more about what she's currently offering, follow Natasha on Instagram at funnygal83. That's her handle, at funnygal83. She's has so much incredible stuff to say. Her uh, her the stuff she puts out there is inspiring vulnerable, wise, and also she's actually really, really funny. So I highly recommend you follow her and work with her too. Thanks. Thanks, Natasha. If you have a story about a time that changed your life, it can be very mundane. You were hanging out by yourself and you had a thought, or it can be crazy, crazy. You uh, were drinking plant medicine and you had a vision. Um, Whatever the story is, if you want to share it, I want to hear it. I really, really, really do want to hear from you. Please email me at claritystories at actingrealpodcast.com. That's claritystories at actingrealpodcast.com. Michael Chernis uh, is my guest today, and I just adore this human being just beyond, as do so many, uh, and we talk all about that. He is a, one of those people that is just sort of universally loved. Um, he's such a great guy, and it comes so effortlessly to him. He is so great, in fact, that I had the great fortune of dating him <laughs> for four years. 
Uh, this is over a decade now, so it's been quite a while, but I certainly have so many fond memories of our time together and just, you know, I mean, luckily we've been able to stay friends. Um, and I just appreciate him and his wisdom and his way of thinking about the world and thinking about acting and thinking about, um, you know, relationships and, and identity and uh, growth so much. I just adore him so, and I adore this episode. Um, we talk about becoming ourselves. Uh, Michael has certainly undergone so many transformations, and yet also he hasn't. But uh, we talk pretty specifically about you know, some stuff that we talked, you know, that we had going on back when we were dating about, you know, who he was and who he had been and sort of some transformations he had undergone um, in his early 20s and um, and about the transforming he continues to undergo, uh, you know, as we do, as we grow. Um, we talk about our fear of fucking up. Actors are terrified of fucking up, fucking up their lines, fucking up the blocking, stopping the scene. Of course, we're all afraid of fucking up, um, you know, whether it's just that you're going to present something to your boss or you don't make the sale or whatever your job is. Um, we're all afraid of fucking up. Uh, and Michael specifically talks about uh, some a big fuck up he made or whatever, some something he fucked up with Will Smith uh, on the set of Men in Black 3, which is, I mean, you know, the stakes are high, or maybe they're not, but in that moment they felt really high to Michael. So he talks about that. It's a great story. Um, we talk about uh, Michael plays the bass. He's a, a musician too, in case you didn't know, which you maybe did, but... Um, He's a fantastic musician and he plays the bass guitar and he talks about some early lessons he learned from his bass teacher. Um, so this is a really fun app. Like if you want to get a sense of what our lives were like when we were, you know, in our early mid 20s and hustling in New York City, like this is sort of all about it. Um, and, uh, you know, and of course, so much more. I mean, but there's a lot of fun details in here. Uh, and, you know, like, I, I mean, just all sorts of things I have that I still feel shame about it, <laughs> like ways that I acted out or things that I said while I was dating Michael, you know, which was so long ago now, but I still like sometimes cringe at some of the stuff uh, that I did or said. And we talk about that stuff in, in our episode too. Um, some relationship stuff too, which is fun. And it was so long ago. Um, but I think this is a very entertaining episode and I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, if you don't know Michael, which of course you do, uh, on the small screen, you've seen him in many notable streaming shows like Rami on Hulu, Orange is the New Black on Netflix, the Amazon series Patriot, the Joe Swanberg written and directed show Easy, as well as many network shows, most recently Tommy on CBS. On the big screen, he has acted in many studio films such as Spider-Man Homecoming, Men in Black 3, Captain Phillips, The Bourne Legacy, and Jack and Diane, as well as many independent features like The Family Fang, Love and Other Drugs, and The Most Hated Woman in America. Also an accomplished stage actor, Michael won a 2011 Obie Award and received a Lucy Lortel Award nomination for his performance in Lisa Crohn's In the Wake at the Public Theater in New York City. On stage, he has co-starred with David Hyde Pierce and Rosie Perez in the Manhattan Theater Club production of Close Up Space at New York City Center and with America Ferreira in the revival of Terrence McNally's Lips Together, Teeth Apart at Second Stage. Other New York credits uh, include such theaters as Playwrights Horizons, The Roundabout Theater Company, Primary Stages, New York Theater Workshop, The Atlantic Theater Company, and many productions at the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. 
where he played the lead role of KJ in the play The Aliens, which the New York Times named the best play of 2010. And I think it won a bunch of other awards, maybe too. His credits in regional theater include productions at the Williamstown Theater Festival, the Yale Repertory Theater, and the Guthrie Theater, among others. Internationally, he appeared in Adam Rapp's Finer Noble Gases at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Fringe, they won the Fringe First Award. I was there. It was a really fun time in Scotland, FYI, side note. Uh, and in London at the Bush Theater, Michael is a graduate of the Juilliard School. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Emily Simonis. Michael is very involved with his wife's nonprofit space, uh, nonprofit space on Ryder Farm. Um, and she sounds just like such a badass. And in case you missed it, um, Michael and his wife, Emily, uh, organized a fundraiser for the Joe Biden campaign called tie-dying for Biden for tie-dying for Biden, um, with which they raised $200,000 for the Joe Biden campaign, which is just so cool and impressive. So anyway, I just love this episode. I love talking to Michael. He's such a smart, interesting, likable, talented lovely human and uh one of my faves and um uh, i hope you enjoy this episode as much as i do and you have to discover where the bones go what i need for my life i am drawn to create the play You must use the play. You must use it like okay, an ingredient great. We're both recording. Hi. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, okay, so I have to tell you this, that like, um, so, okay, so for, for listeners who don't know, Michael and I dated for, what do you say? Do you say four years or do you say three and a half or do you say three? What do you say? I would say four years. Um I mean, we, we like broke up and got back together within that four years, but yeah. it was, it spanned a four year period. That's what I say too. Okay. Yeah. So we dated for quite a while and, and that, this is like, what I'm about to say is really a shout out to you that like you in that time that we dated introduced me to every single person in New York, because you've historically known every single person in New York. And like, I went to NYU, like I knew some people too, but you really like you, you know, when we started dating like people were calling you had these parties that were called Mondays with Chernus, Sundays with Chernus. Mondays with Chern- Mondays yeah. with Chernus. And yeah. you were you at and we had it at this bar called East Fourth Street Bar. And uh you were affectionately known as the mayor of East Fourth Street. I was. I was. <laughs> so so and so really like it was it was really through being your friend and and then your girlfriend that like I really ended up meeting so many people in New York because you knew so many people in New York. Um and I, of course, whatever. Like I was doing stuff too. It's not all you, but it was really a lot you. No, and- of course I, I but I well, full, full disclosure, I was looking through your past episodes in preparation for this, and I was like, oh, I introduced Kat to that person. I introduced yeah. Kat to that person. Um, I Yeah, it's. I think it was more just I was um, a social person who was, like, out of work and had nothing to do, and it was a way of I – ha- I hesitate to even say networking because it didn't feel like that. It was a way to commiserate with fellow – unemployed artists and feel like a sense of community when you weren't 
in community. Um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I, I was think, doing anything more than you. It was just well, like, no, no, no. Of course, of course, and like, yeah. I mean, we we also met at a reading, right? We met right doing Brooke Berman's reading, right? Um, um, but like, essentially, you were. I guess the best way to say it is that you were sort of like a central figure in what ended up becoming, in part, my community too, um, or the central force or the central like uh, conduit for the, the, so many of those introductions. Um, and obviously like, I'm so grateful to you for being that, but like more, what I want to say is that, um, like, I, I don't, I don't think it's, it may, may have been a way for you and other out of work actors to commiserate. Although in truth, many of those actors were not out of work actors. They were very, 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 very working actors at that time but more where my interest lies and it becomes a larger conversation to me is like, do you still feel like the mayor? And, and, and I don't mean to label you, you know, I'm kind of, that's a shortcut way of saying it, but that, and also like, what, what is it about your personality slash like very conscious choice to be, um, to, 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 to have so much community around you so effortlessly, like, what is that about you? Oh, you're so sweet. I, um, it's hard to talk about without sounding, um, you know, all kinds of different things, pretentious, annoying, (laughs) narcissistic. I, I don't know why. I think part of it is, um, I'm, I'm drawn to people. I like connecting people. I like being connected to people. I love actors. I love writers. I love directors. I think, um, it also came from a time in my life when, so no, I'm no longer like a mayor type. I think I've, I've become much more isolated and probably introverted and it's not something that I really feel good about. I think some of it is just getting older and actually some of it is having more success in our industry. I feel like I'm less surrounded by people all the time. Part of it was born out of, of hustle. Like I feel like I just, and I know you were the same way back then. And we're talking about a fairly long time ago now, but like my approach to being an out of work actor was like, well, then I have to see everything and be everywhere and, you know, do anything, even if it's for free, like do readings, be a reader, forecasting directors, um, you know, do tiny storefront plays. Like, and so I think, maybe people just knew I was sort of down for anything and that I was sort of ubiquitous in the way that I would just like show up at anybody's show and like be a cheerleader. I was incredibly supportive and still am, but like just loved our tribe of weird circus weirdos. Mm -hmm. And, um, I also think, um, this is where it gets, I don't want to like compliment myself, but I think I'm able to, make people feel comfortable in a way that like, I, I really am not a super competitive person. And I feel like, um, you know, I think we used to joke that I was sort of like the alpha male whisperer. Like I (laughs) would be surrounded by these sort of like, you know, really kind of aggro guys who I was the only one who was able to tame. Um, I feel like and this is not to put myself down, but I feel like I was, could be a beta to people in the best way where I could like um, be a wingman or a buddy or whatever to some of these like very successful sort of cocky 
uh, actors and directors and playwrights. And um, I think I'm very comfortable um, sharing space. Like I want, I don't need to be the center of attention. And so what was funny with that thing that kind of grew out of, it very organically happened, but um, I, by be, me be, being called the mayor and it being dubbed Mondays with Chernus, I think is what enabled it to happen because mm. I, I wasn't needing the ego of having a knight named after me. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was it was really, there was a bunch of us who were in like off and off, off Broadway plays one summer. It was my friend Josh Radner, who I know was on your podcast before and yeah. a few other people, uh, our friend Patch Dara and a few other people who were, all working in the East Village at the time, Christine Jones, who was designing something at New York Theater Workshop. And we were all working within a five block radius of each other in the East Village. And everyone just kind of kept meeting on Monday nights, which is the off night for the theater. And one night someone was like, we should do this every Monday. And I was the only idiot who took that seriously. (laughs) And then like emailed everyone the next week and was like, hey, are we meeting again on Monday? And so it just kind of started being called Mondays with Chernus. But you know what? Like, can I just, because this is like sort of a really important point. um, Because I know you're just affectionately referring to yourself as the idiot, but like you did, you know, that's, that was vulnerable for you to just be like, hey, um," you know, so there is a willingness on your part to, you know, to be uh, the wingman or, or, or the, or frankly, the person who just very honestly expresses their need to hang out, you know? Oh yeah. No, I was like, the thing that brought me into the theater originally was I was like a kind of a chubby nerdy kid who didn't have like a crowd in my junior high, high school. And the theater was like a place where I felt included and safe and um, where I found confidence and community. And so I think I'm always forever the guy who's like, Hey, but when when are we hanging out again? And like, <laughs> well, and but what's so brilliant is is what that ultimately, uh, what what that leads to. I mean, certainly in your case, is um, a huge. I mean, we're talking like a hundred people, more than a huge community of people who who conspire to name you the mayor of East Fourth Street. You know what I mean? Like in your real, frankly, like you're, you're just heart open non-attachment to the whole thing. You effortlessly attracted slash manifested slash created slash whatever the fuck you want to call it. A, a real sense of community among all of those people who, who felt that way toward you and then toward each other. And I mean, you know, like it was, a, it was a real, it was a real cool thing. I wish we'd had like a photographer back then to like, I know, you know? It was wild. Relationships were born there, like uh, collaborations, working relationships. I have some pictures, by the way. I have some pictures yeah. that I can send you. Um, jump the shark, though, when like real celebs started showing up. Like I remember by the time right. Ed Norton, Ed Norton. And Heather Graham were like coming by, it was it kind of became a scene, and then it it died. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, because then people are suddenly like, oh fuck, like now I have to be yeah. something or be yeah, someone or. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I mean, we could probably go down that hole for a while, but I'm going to avoid it for now. Um, because <laughs> something, cause you said a few interesting things that I already want to go back to. Um, yeah. one of them is this thing about being this chubby nerdy kid. And, um, I, you know, I have this memory, you know, you and I used to like 
look, 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 look. I mean, I'll just take this opportunity to just, I'm sorry. Right. Like, I'm sorry for like, you know, just my young, you know, blind spots that I had about so many things. Right. Um, but I, I gave you a hard time. I remember I used to give you a hard time about your shirts. Do you remember this? I think so. Vaguely. Yeah. Like you wore these great shirts and I was like, what did I call them? I, I forget, but do you remember? Yeah. There well, was some uh, fight we had where I like made fun of you for your shirts. Yeah, like like you, you were always wearing or, yeah, your yeah. stupid shirts or your stupid t-shirts yeah. or whatever. Cause yeah. you always had like the same, essentially like the same, I don't know, however many 10, 20 shirts that you wore over <laughs> and over. And, and I, and I don't know what I wanted in that moment. Like, I don't know what I wanted you to be other than you are. Cause retrospectively, of course, like you're, you're, you were perfect, but like it, in, in that moment, uh, who knows? I wanted you to dress differently in some fucking way. So, um, and you were like, you said something like, this is essentially like, this is me. And I've cultivated this very me, me, like, this is me. And I do think I, that kind of shut me up. Like to my credit, I think like whatever that one fight was, which was probably a recurring one, like did kind of shut me up. But I, but I go back to that now. And I like, kind of want to talk because like, you know, I remember seeing pictures of you at Juilliard where, you know, you'd like decided to lose weight or like, you know, try to stray from whatever this chubby nerdy kid, you know, sort of archetype is for you. And then there was a decision on your part to, you know, essentially like become you. And yeah, so, so it, my follow my, my question is like, do you remember that? Does that sound real? What was that process and how has that evolved essentially is the question. Yeah. I mean, I remember that. I remember certainly versions of that uh, fight or conversation that we had. And um, first of all, you're being very generous and, and thank you. But like, you know, there, there was, there was bullshit on my end too. I mean, um, you know, we, we were kids and I think probably what you were asking for was someone who was, you know, attempting to be a little bit more of an adult. And I was sort of claiming my schlubby, you know, urban outfitters t-shirt and trucker hat and dirty jeans as like some kind of uh, this is my essential self when really it, it wasn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, not to go too deep, too quick, but like we, we all wear masks at times and you know those masks change as we get older but like i'm still completely struggling to figure out like quote unquote who i am or like what is the real me or what would be an authentic physical representation of myself but in relation to acting i think what you're maybe you're remembering is yeah like when i was at at college at juilliard i was i was like like most kids in like a rigorous theater program, I was like in pretty good physical shape because we were taking movement class every day. And I had like short kind of like the spiky haircut of the late 1990s <laughs> and, and was trying like probably every other guy in my class to be a young leading man when we all got out of school. And I was 21. And those were the auditions I was getting was to play um, because I'd gone to Juilliard, it was a lot of like Shakespeare, like to play Romeo or like any kind of young romantic lead. And what I would find is you would go into these waiting rooms and there would be 40, 50 other guys who looked exactly like you, but were slightly better looking and in better shape. And 
it just sort of felt like this uphill battle that I was never going to win. And it, I also felt like I was always struggling to be thin and to try to be better looking and better dressed than I was. And, um, right before I met you, I did a play in DC, um, in Washington, DC in like 2003, where I played like a schlubby manic depressive author in this play by Nina Bieber called jump cut. And I remember like the character talked about how his, uh, bipolar medication made him gain weight. So I was like actively as like a method actor, like <laughs> not trying to work out or, or diet or, and I was growing my hair and my beard out. And all of a sudden this thing happened where I was like, Oh, I kind of feel more comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. And I came back to New York after the run of the play was over and I didn't shave my beard and I didn't cut my hair. And then playwright friends of mine were like, Oh, wow. Yeah. I like this new look of yours and a good friend of mine for life. But, um, at that time who we were all palling around with was with the writer, Adam Rapp. And he was like, Oh dude, Chernus, don't cut your hair. Like don't shave your beard. I have this play about a rock band that I, you'd be perfect for. And, um, that was the play finder normal gases that I ended up doing. And then we formed a rock band out of that play for years, which by the way, I still listen to that music. Oh, I promise you, I still that, that music still comes on my phone and I listen to all of the songs. Bless <laughs> the band. Yep. Um, yeah. So th- I think like what happened in that period was, was, you know, I like so many young people in their like mid twenties, like I started to like slough off the ideas of like what it meant to be attractive or an adult or myself that I had inherited from where, where I grew up and, um, and started to like form my own personality and my own taste and my own likes, which, you know, in the early aughts when I was in my twenties was like a grungy indie rock bearded weirdo. Um, so at the time when we were having whatever domestic fight we were having, I'm sure it very much felt like, no, this is who I am. This old like cowboy shirt and and band t-shirt and, um, but no, now that doesn't feel like me. But you know either. what? But I just I do want to like t- sort of like to your credit, although actually just sort of like to this conversation's credit. I mean, just to like open this up, you know, what you just said is that you'd begun to slough off the layers of, you know, w- beliefs that you had from your childhood and where you came from and the, you know, leading man at Juilliard or whatever. And, and And yes, maybe in your memory, it was like you were sort of asserting a new identity that now feels a little silly too. But I do think that what you're actually describing and, and I, you know, look, language always falls short of describing the truth. So this is a, there's, there's literally an infinite number of versions of this, but what I hear, which I think is like really cool is this idea that like in your early twenties, which is by the way, so young to do this. So young. So young. And, and which is so beautiful. Like you kind of were shedding. Like you're like, wait a minute, maybe I don't need this part or this yeah. like aspect. Oh, actually like, and I'm getting feedback now that like I'm better songs asp- this aspect. Like maybe I can just sort of like allow. And in so doing you, and, and then also like, 
you know, you, you let that feedback penetrate, like you really, you kind of opened yourself up. You opened your, your body, your, your image, your hair, your beard, your clothes up to, to, um, sort of like what they wanted to become. Like you, you sort of stopped prescribing identity to them. Although now in retrospect, you're saying like grungy, whatever, but like at the time it felt, it did feel very authentic. I think. Yeah, no, it, it did. It absolutely did. And, and so, um, so what do you, but like, what's your advice to, you know, people look, we all hold on to shit, right? Like I'm still holding on to, I mean, I've let go of so much shit, but like, you know, for instance, like I still don't love that my hair is curly, you know, like I still like fucking straighten my hair and you know, right. like whatever, like I, I try to make my face look better, you know, with like bullshit and um, you know, whatever, that's just like sort of a very outward thing. Um, I mean, in terms of personality, like I, I've really, I've, I've let go a lot of the performance that I had in my past. And I, there's one event that I really would do want to, to mention to you, but like, how do you, you know, we all know, how do you, can you just talk a little bit about like, and you just did in your own personal life, but I think it's valuable for, for people everywhere, whether they're actors or not, to hear about this process of becoming aware of aspects of you that are maybe more performative and then letting those aspects go. Yeah. Well, first of all, just in the realm of like appearance, um, I have to acknowledge, like I'm aware that it is much still to this day, all the, though the industry has changed somewhat. Um, it's so much easier for a man to do these kind of things that we're talking about, like quote unquote, like, I just want to let myself go. Like, I mean, the demands on me in terms of how I need to look to be camera ready for an audition are completely different than what they are for you. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't have to even wear makeup or really think about much at all. And, um, that being said, like, um, I, oh God, I, it's so tricky. Cause like I said, I feel like I'm still discovering this, but, um, well, so maybe talk about that, Michael, like talk about how you're still like l- identifying and, and m- moving through like aspects of yourself that don't feel totally authentic. If that's true for you. Yeah. Um, like what well, stories do you hold on to? That's sort of a big thing that I've been about yourself. What stories do you hold on to about yourself? Wow. Or do you, by the way, I don't want to like, no, I mean, this is really good. I mean, this is, this is the stuff. Um, so, well, this year has been like really hard, obviously for everyone this past year of COVID. And I think my shrink and I were talking yesterday, um, and partly in anticipation of this conversation, I was telling him about, um, you know, the, I, the prospect of getting on a podcast with my old pal and ex-girlfriend to talk about acting was sort of daunting in this year where I don't really feel like an actor anymore. Mm. Um, I've been working some, but like this whole identity I've really had to acknowledge throughout the pandemic that so much of my self-confidence and my self-identity and everything about me is sort of wrapped up in this idea of I'm an actor, Mm. Michael, the actor. And it goes all the way back to like the first play I ever did in eighth grade where I was that 
chubby kid who loved acting and I think was even in some way good at it then, but also loved the attention and loved the community and loved the accolades and loved, um, you know, that my whole family would have to come see me in the play and pay attention Mm -hmm. to me. And so this idea of, and I've never not been an actor since that moment forward. And this idea that um, that would be sort of removed from my life um, was intense, but I had to, you know, confront who am I if I'm not an actor? Who is Michael Chernus without acting? And um, I think I've discovered in in moments this year that I'm I'm would be okay without it. I mean, I still want to do it, but. Um, I don't have to do it. So, I mean, maybe the biggest like thing that I'm shedding is this idea that I am only an actor or mm. um, that that is somehow what defines me. Um, well, what else are you? Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a musician. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a man. I'm a, gardener i'm a dog dad activist you're an activist sure uh thank you um uh yeah i'm uh i'm uh i try to be a ally and a voice for social justice when i can i um but then what are you also like you know like here i'll just turn this on me right so um I am, um, I am quiet. I am thoughtful. I'm generous. I'm loving. I'm compassionate. I'm, um, hungry. I'm tired. I'm at peace. I'm anxious, you know, like there's so many aspects of us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm all of those. I'm this past year, I've been so scared and so anxious and so lonely and, um, angry. Um, and do you think that's cause you haven't, is it cause you haven't been, but you are working, right? I mean, you're like working now you you're on a show. I'm sorry. See, these are the things I don't research. Cause I actually don't really like, <laughs> but I should know you're on a show right now. Right. Well, you shouldn't know. It's actually not public. Um, okay, sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, I think I can say it. It's not going to like blow up the internet or anything, but it's a new show for Apple called Severance. Um, and so I've been working on that off and on uh, this year. Um, yeah, so I, I've been working, but even, you know, this working anymore is so different too. It, mm-hmm. It's not as satisfying. It's like, you know, I feel hashtag grateful for the job or whatever, but it's, it's not this, it doesn't feel as with all the COVID protocols, it feels weird and scary and lonely too. You don't mm. have mm-hmm. the community on set. And, um, um, well, by the way, working can feel lonely and scared and all of those things like sounds oh, COVID pro, but I mean, completely. You know, like sometimes if you're on set and by the way, like I always say, we're talking about set, but we're talking about any office building or open floor plan or like wherever you work. It's like, you know, sometimes it feels like people are not into you for whatever reason or, and it gets scary. Completely. 
And what do you do in those moments? Um, like, how do you calm down? Like, how do you, in these moments over the past year where you felt anxious and lonely, like, what do you, what are your resources? How do you, um, how do you, um, how do you heal? I mean, you know, I, dif- different forms of meditation I've always been drawn to. I mean, I really breathe, literally just breathing, like just laying down on the ground is, has always been helpful to me. Um, even just like acting school style, like breathing exercises will, will pull me down. Um, uh, I'm in a lot of therapy, which is partially thanks to you. I remember I was not <laughs> in therapy when we were together and you were an advocate for I'm it. A and big I'm, proponent. Yeah. Always yeah. And I've been in therapy most of my adult life since, um, uh, in terms of work, I, there are a couple like little mantras I say to myself, like, you know, I'm just like, this room is half my size. Mm, Um, That's beautiful. Tell me about that. Well, just like feeling overwhelmed by the size of the job or the other actors involved. Like you can, I can very easily spiral into a place of like self-destruction of like, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to fuck this up. And, like the paranoid part of my brain will come crashing down. Like this is the end of my career, basically. Mm-hmm. Like this is where <laughs> I can't remember my lines and I say something stupid and I waste everybody's time and I get fired and then I never work again. And this is the moment where I've been, you know, found out where it's, you know, I've been a fraud all along and, and now everybody <laughs> knows. And, yeah. um, you know, there was something inherently wrong with me and uh, it's finally my fatal flaw has finally come back to, to get me. And, um, so yeah, just trying, like literally sometimes even just looking at like my scene partner's face, I feel like an acting teacher once told me just like try to recognize what's different about the person, like to just pull you into the present. Like, Mm -hmm. even if it's like, Oh, that little piece of their, that eyebrow hair is like out of whack or like Mm -hmm. they've got something in their teeth or just like noticing them, in the moment. I'm just trying to focus on something outside of myself. Um, but along those lines, I have a quick story. When I was shooting a couple scenes in men in black three, like 10 years ago, one of my first big films, I had, um, this, a lot of like sort of made up sci-fi gobbledygook that I had to say to Will Smith on top of this, it's supposed to be on top of the Chrysler building, but it was a, a, set piece that was built in a soundstage, but it was still probably 30 feet in the air. And we're both harnessed in because we're so high up. And um, there's a crew of like a hundred people down below. And they're so far down below, the director literally has a megaphone. (laughs) And um, Barry Sonnenfeld. And the first take, he calls action and Will and I have to pop out of this trap door and walk out onto this ledge. And I don't remember my line. I have the first line. And not only do I not remember my line, I don't remember my name. Like, I don't know yeah. where I am or who I am. And, um, I was just like, shit, sorry line. And Barry yells cut. And we have to go back to one. And Will Smith looks at me and he's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Mike, we make movies in pieces. We make movies in pieces. We'll be here all day. Aww, and that Will like Smith. act of generosity from him. Yeah. So much. And then I was able to be like, cause I was so worried. I was like, Will Smith's going to hate me. Like, yeah. this, is, this is it. My career is over. And, um, 
he was like, whatever, I'm going to forget lines all day today too. Let's just have fun. Um, and so some days when I'm on set, I'll just say that to myself. I'll be like, movies are made in pieces. We we make movies in pieces, Mike. We make movies in pieces. And so just to remember like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way to take the pressure off. Yeah. You have um, another chance way, in two seconds. Like, don't by worry. the way, side note, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld directed the first pilot that I ever did. Oh, my God. Remember that? I do the remember. The Webster that. Report. The Webster Report. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, okay. But so wait, yeah. but I want to go back to your mantras because I love this idea that the room is half your size. Because, by the way, literally speaking, the room is not half your size. But that's like a metaphor, right? Yeah. For an energetic you want to inhabit that the room is just half your size. So can you just talk a little bit more about how that serves to um, quell your nerves? Yeah. I mean, obviously like in the wrong hands, maybe that mantra could go the wrong way for someone who already believes that that they are bigger than everything. But I think for me, who's maybe walking under the situation already feeling insecure, it's for me, it quells my nerves because it's like, this job is not, bigger than you. This TV Mm -hmm. show is not bigger. Like you are, you, you are infinite. You can contain multitudes. You are a wise, powerful, smart, funny, talented person who is worthy of this moment, um, who is capable, who is um, able to handle this with ease and with grace. And, um, and this is not the, first or last job you will ever have this is not your big break like it's it's a scene in an episode and you know uh it's a way to remember that you that you are not less powerful than whatever forces there are around you yeah and even this room is like less powerful than the greater production that you are making this is a moment this is you know right yeah and that thing of like the the gaffer is going to fuck up later too and so is the you know someone's going to have the continuity wrong and your scene partner is going to forget their line and Uh, everyone gets a chance to you know i want to like i I, it's like what i keep like as you're talking about like yes so actors yeah we fear fucking up right because like it feels like all eyes are on us. We have a responsibility not to fuck up, like whatever there, you know, there's a lot of pressure, like to not fuck up, to make it through the take, to make it through the line, well, to make it through the moment. Cause we all have a scarcity mentality too, though, because we're all like, you know, we've been told since the beginning that there's a hundred other people waiting behind us to take the job when we get fired, you know? Like, and so how do you combat that by the way? I still don't. So like <laughs> I was complaining. So like Tuesday, I got two auditions came in. Both were literally both were 15 pages of songs. Fuck you. Fuck One you. was a gigantic monologue and you know, they're both self tapes because of COVID, but that also entails like setting up a whole movie studio at my house. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, my immediate impulse was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And I was also like, why didn't they offer it to me? You're like, I'm like, yeah. I've been auditioning since 1999 and, and there's that moment where you're just always back at square I know. one, or it feels like it at least, you know, obviously no, like the work you do does accrue, mm-hmm. but I'm like, how am I still freaking auditioning for like, you know, supporting recurring roles on them? Like, just kill right. me. Right. But then the little voice in my head goes, if you don't put yourself on tape, there's a hundred other actors who want it. 
Well, but sometimes you go, I mean, probably sometimes you go like, I don't want this so bad, like make them offer it to me. And probably sometimes they do. Right. It's such a catch. Sometimes. Too. Yeah. yeah. But then sometimes like if the job is cool and the part is cool, then it's like, fuck, fuck you for sending me this. Please just offer it to me. But you know, you're going to fucking do it anyway, because it's probably worth your time just as an actor to do. Yes. It, sort of. Here. you know, Okay. Do you mind if I go off on a tangent? I feel like you had a point you were just- Please, please <laughs> go, please go on a tangent. Here's what it is. I think for whatever cosmic reason, like me being an actor, at least the business of being an actor, there's like a great life lesson that I need to learn over and over again. It's like the karmic wheel. As I'm sure you are well aware, I struggle with decision and indecision. And I come from a long line of woulda, coulda, shoulda people in my family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's something about the choices we have as actors, like just that, like I could pass on this, I could say no, or I could throw my hat in the ring that I always lose sleep over. And my therapist talks a lot about like putting yourself at the center of your own initiative. That's something he says to me a lot. Mm. And, you know, trying to tap into my own desire and my own, you know, I feel like there are actors in my life and, and, I said this to them, they'd probably be like, Chernus, you're crazy. I'm just as worried about the decisions I make as you are. But, you know, like people like Paul Sparks, who I was in a band with, or Mike Shannon, like who I just feel like have this clear vision where they're like, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. These are the, this is the next thing I want to do. And even if I pass on that thing and the actor who says yes to it wins an Oscar for it, I don't care because that wasn't what I wanted to do. I am not like that. Like if I pass on something, I will look it up every day <laughs> for the rest of my life to see who did it and what they're doing next. And just I in case it. you might regret it. Yeah. yeah. Just in case I'm hating myself, I can go back to that and be like, yeah. see if you, if you had said yes to that job, you'd right. be doing that job. And yeah. Um, there's a, like a little bit of Zen that I need to like find in just, you know, my path is my path. And like what, forget about like what it's going to do for you or what it might lead to. Like, do you want to play that part? Do you want to tell that story? Do you want to work with those people day in? And do you want to go to that city and relocate for three months? And so more and more, I'm trying to focus on those things. Like how does, how does it affect me and my life right now? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, a giant. So what's struggle. the decision? Sorry, go ahead, finish, and then I uh, want to know what happened with these sides. Well, one, I, I actually, I did a Zoom uh, audition for like right before I got on this with oh, the casting did. director. So it was yeah. a callback. So you got a callback for this. It wasn't part. a. It was. It no, this you had a, prepared for. This was always a Zoom session. It was always like a. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. always. Been. And then the other one, I haven't decided yet. Okay. All right. Good. I'm the tape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, okay. So wait, just before I move on from these mantras, is yeah. there anything other than the, um, and by the way, I, it's like, I also kind of want to talk about this indecision too, but just for the moment, like, is you, you mentioned a couple mantras. Is there anything other than, cause I think mantras are actually like such a fucking powerful tool. Um, yeah. was there there's, something there's else? This, there's this book. It's sort of cheesy, but it's like a self-help motivational book called the big leap do you know that book love it no i actually don't know that book who wrote it there's a mantra in it that's like um i expand in abundance success and love every day as i inspire those around me to do the same yes i love that mantra i figured you would 
Of course I do. That's beautiful. <laughs> so sometimes you use that mantra too. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, these mantras, like, uh, they, they can replace, they can replace thoughts, right? Like we can, we can be yeah. intentional about the thoughts that we have. And one of the tools to do that with is mantras. Like I have recently, well, not recently, actually, this is like the past couple of years. Like you probably remember, like I was always dieting. I was just like always on some fucking kind of diet, you know, I do remember always, always, always some kind of diet. And, um, you know, for years, like years and years and years and years and years and, and always just like, always, even though like then, like at some point, like I got over like the real disordered eating where I was like actually a little bulimic and like then, you know, like the real restrictive stuff, like I kind of like moved mm -hmm. out of that and I felt much healthier about food and stuff, Good. but then I had a baby and like, yeah. I know. Yeah. I don't know. And then I had a baby and I was like, sort of like, you know, um, obviously like I, I mean, I gained 65 pounds when I was pregnant and, um, and yeah. so like my, this part of me kept kind of recurring where I would be like, you know, I just want to like go hard, you know, like go mm. on a diet, like going on, like there was like this instinct that I would have, like I'd open the refrigerator and I'd be like, well, I'm not going to eat that because carbs, I'm not going to eat that because fat. And I like, my brain started like freaking out about diet stuff again. Cause I had gained all this weight, but I felt a greater responsibility for my daughter because she's like, I know that a huge reason why I have all of this food obsession is that my mom did, you know, like she, my yeah. mom always talked about dieting and she, and so I had this mantra for a while, every time like a thought about dieting would come up, I would just say like, I don't do that anymore. Wow. I'm not doing that anymore. And it was just like a, a thing that like very sort of organically emerged and it's still with me. And like, I, 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 I find that. even now, like I find, like I just got a, an acting job recently and like anytime I get a job, my first fear immediately is like the fitting. Like I always am anxious about the fucking fitting. Am I going to fit in the fucking clothes? What if I don't fit in the clothes? What if someone sees the picture and I'm too fat and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I always, my first instinct is like, okay, I should, I should do something. Like I should go on a cleanse, stop eating carbs, like whatever the fucking thing is, you know, start working out a lot, whatever. And it's still, I find it hard having practiced this mantra now so much over the past two years to do it. Yeah. Like, and in fact, I even now feel like when I do try and get weird about food, like when I do start to try and like do a quote unquote diet, I end up gaining weight yeah. because it's like, I take the, the feeling out of my body. I try to like overlay some intellectual idea about what I should eat onto what I'm eating rather than, um, rather than like listening to my body, you know, right. which if right. I do that, then guess what? I'm usually never hungry and I'm usually never full. And it's usually, or like I do get really hungry, but then I just like eat what I want to eat and I don't overeat and I don't undereat. And then like my body sort of self-regulates and I feel good, you know? Totally. But who does that? I know. No, I know. It's hard. <laughs> no, it's a real, but this is why I'm saying this is the power of mantras, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's an awesome mantra. Yeah. Is to like, but de is to like skirt to skirt the, the habit, you know, to like, when you walk onto set and you feel like shit or like it, or you're going to fuck up to just like go into like here, instead of thinking that thought, I'm going to think this new thought, which yeah. is going to help me feel a lot fucking better than that other thought I was just thinking. Yeah. You know? And in that way, by the way, like, you know, whether we have specific mantras or not, like if we can continually practice giving ourselves thoughts consciously rather than just listening and believing the voices that emerge automatically, 
we're going to fare much better in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's how do I authentically find um, like a truthful mantra that's not coming from some place of either ego or like self-hatred because um, I have thoughts all the time yeah. and uh, you know, sometimes the mantras that I come up with are sneakily born out of some kind of uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to tread this middle path, like trying to thread the needle of, and not to keep going back to our relationship 15 years ago, but like, please keep like, going back to our relationship. I mean, you know, I feel like to be generous to you, like, well, first of all, we were both just trying to fig figure out who we were. And if in some way I was trying to help you like relax. Yeah. Oh, you were. And I want to go back to this moment on the street that like, still, like, I still oh, just right. like, want, I'm so embarrassed about, but go ahead. So you, you, but if on some me. level I was trying to help you like relax mm -hmm. and maybe love yourself more, I think you were rightfully so trying to help me like motivate myself in, which is also a form of self-love if done in like a positive way, because you believed in my talent and my, because like I have a backfooted self-destructive nature. So like I'm trying to figure out the middle path of like, what is the right amount uh, for me of like self-restriction working? Like how do I take care of myself and eat well and healthily for my body and exercise the right amount so that I'm not like, you know, dying, but also, <laughs> uh, you know, how can I not always be punishing myself? And like, mm -hmm. as far as acting, like what's the right amount of preparation for something? What is the right amount of motivation in terms of like pursuing my career? What is a healthy amount of like ambition and desire? Like, um, how much do I just sort of let it happen to me and come to me or how much should I be pursuing it? These and are what have you come to any conclusions? I have no idea. Um, well, but you do have some idea because you have a very successful career and I know we could always have more success and you could always just like always get offers instead of, I just, well, you know, like there's ways, always places to go, but you do, I mean, objectively, have a very successful career. You do a lot. You work a lot. People really love you and you've done really cool things. So here's the thing. Yeah. Not to sound like an asshole. Like when it comes to like the work, like when I show up at work and like we're here and we're ready, I, I know how to be an actor. Mm -hmm. I think I've figured out now how to like prepare for a day of shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, so like on some level with all of my self-destruction and self-sabotaging, I, some, somehow I was able to protect the, the sacred thing that is my talent or whatever it is. And I can show up on time and, and be good and present and deliver mm -hmm. the job. It's every other moment that I'm a <laughs> crazy psychopath. Yeah, yeah. So like it's, I haven't figured out how to, the the right amount of networking and social yeah, but Michael, media sorry, and like like, I know I'm not your therapist, but I would argue that actually you have. 
And what if you could believe that? Well, then I wouldn't need you to be my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And you, of course, you don't need me to be your therapist because you have a very good therapist from, from all it sounds like. But yeah. like, you know, you, you have figured, what if you have figured it out? Like, what if that's the narrative? Is that actually like you do know how to do it on set and you know how to do it offset because look at your fucking life. Like, look at your beautiful life, your beautiful wife, your beautiful house. And, you know, I don't know so many details of your life in this moment, but like, you know, your beautiful career, your beautiful family, your relationship with them, like, look at like all of the, 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 the solidity that you have, even though you have indecision and you have like neuroticism and all the things that we all do because we're human. But like, what if actually like you could decide today that like, oh, fuck, if I look at my life, the evidence points to me actually that I do fucking know how to do everything. Yeah, I think I've I've had glimpses of that. Yeah. Um I'm I, sure you have. Yeah, and it's nice and I it's good to hear you say that and and remind me of that. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think in this country that we live in and this society we live in, we're all brainwashed to believe that like there always needs to be more and more and more. So like, even as hard as you try to fight against that, like, yeah. And I look at friends and colleagues who are achieving quote unquote more, and it just makes me, you know, envious or envious, jealous, you know, and, and, and also just want that. Yeah. The, the tricky thing is there's also, I think the true part of me, my, my actual actor talent wants more. Like I, yeah. I've, I I have had a great career, but I think there are moments where I'm like, I still want, I want a juicier thing. I want to stretch myself. I want to expand. I want to have more to do. I want to be on set every day. I don't want to be, you know, whatever it is. So um, is this Apple show an opportunity for you to fulfill some of that? Some of it. It's a great part. It's a really cool script. Is this and the script? Wait, is this the script about where half of the building is the old dark office you know like pretty much yeah yeah like you get fired from the real job and then you go to this other place where like it your day kind of repeats something like that i I think i know is this adam scott yeah okay yeah i auditioned to play the sister part oh yeah i fucking love that script i loved that script yeah. Like I loved it. And it's, it's was a such a script. cool job. And I was like, you should get, I literally said at the audition, which I don't usually say, and it's so fucking arrogant to say this, this was pre pandemic, but I was like, you just, they should, you should give me this part. <laughs> 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 like, I was like, you should give it. And they like the, the, the you said that in the like, audition. Yeah, I did. Well, Amazing. I was, it was I just with it. the casting director. Cause I think producers were out of town or something. I can't remember, but I was just with the casting director and, um, and as I was leaving, I was like, you should tell them that they should give this part to me. Cause also like, don't I look like Adam Scott's sister? And like, yeah. I was just, I was super into that project. So yes, like exciting. So exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, okay. So, so sorry, but that's just about no, me. So I, I play know. that character's this, husband. In other words, like, is this an opportunity? Because And the reason that I'm asking you, cause I don't really like the, the purpose of this podcast isn't as much to talk about this show um, or acting in general, frankly, it's really about consciousness. So the reason I'm asking you that is that like, you know, 
I have found that what we feed grows and that what we see, we be, which is a quote from another podcast episode that I did with Mark Feuerstein. He had a guru who used to say, what you see, you be, right? So, so my question is, and, and, and I know from another teacher of mine, what you feed grows. If you could go into severance, or by the way, any of these jobs that you might get between now and when you start shooting that or in between your shooting of that or whatever it is, like, yeah. could you, if you could actually um, imagine that, that you are getting all that you desire in these roles. Like if you could approach even the things that even the moments or the scenes that feel like, oh, this is what I always do. I want to do something greater or bigger as if those moments or roles are, or scenes are that greater and bigger thing. Like, I wonder if those greater and bigger or whatever the thing is. And by the way, I know you already do this because your career has continually gotten greater and bigger, you know? to some degree, but actually, so as I'm talking like more, it's like, what's, I don't have, I don't have a question. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about that. Do you feel like that's something you've done or inhabited or? I do in the career realm, but like career aside and like every moment I'm playing this character, I love cause he's, he's fucking ridiculous and incredible. And it's like a great part. The thing, frankly, that bothers me is like, I'm just not on it that much Yeah, and I'm not there every day. And right. I think, so on one hand, it's just like you could say, I, I just love to work and I love being an actor. So what it is, is I just want to be on set every day. But as you said, like this podcast is more about consciousness. So the thing I've been grappling with this year is why do I need to work every day? Mm. And so, yes, let's on one hand say like, because you love acting and it's fulfilling and it's sort of like who you are and it, and it's your, it's where you thrive, but also if I'm being like blatantly honest, I think it's like, cause I don't know who I am without it. Mm. And I don't know very practically like what to do with my days when I'm not acting. Mm. One of the things I really struggle with, whether it was the pandemic or like, you know, when you find yourself on location for a job and it's some town you don't really know and your partner can't be with you and you only work like two or three days a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with those other days of the week. You know, I've already gone to the one museum in town and I've gone to the best restaurant you're supposed to go to. And I've walked through the park you're supposed to go to. And, and then all of a sudden, and then your friends start saying like, you should write a script. Mm -hmm. You should, you should learn how to play an instrument. You should learn how to speak French. And I'm like, I don't want to do any of those things. Like mm -hmm. I just want to be acting or I want, you know, um, so, you know, as actors, we all have downtime no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I really struggle with as, and as ironically, as I get more successful, I feel like I have more downtime because I'm not out there hustling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know what, I'm saying this broadly, of course I do know, but like, I don't know what I like to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know who I am. I don't know how to organize my day unless it's a, organized around. You know, it's so interesting. It's like, this is a very special thing about acting that I think does does apply to other professions and certainly any artistic profession or pursuit. Um, but it is very particular to acting that, and I don't know if you would say this, but I definitely feel this, like it's a meditation, 
Like we have to be so present for our jobs. We have to, we have to be so present while we're working. And even when we're in our trailers, because we're about to work or whatever the thing is that like, there's a lot of, you know, I, I like always am reluctant to use this word on the podcast, but it's, it, it's of great spiritual benefit to act, you know, like it is very presenting and it's very enjoyable just by virtue of all you're thinking about is acting and like completely. So there's some, yeah. there is when you're not acting, it's sort of like, how do you attain that state wherein you're completely absorbed in what you're doing in every moment? Completely. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm like an acting addict. If I'm not acting, I'm But that's really beautiful. And that's part of the reason you've had so much success. And I think a, a lot of people say that, you know, there people say you've been bitten by the bug or whatever the fuck that is, you know, but you, you, you're, you do, you become kind of an acting addict. Um, and so, and that is a struggle. Like, yeah. How do you find that kind of joy and presenting when it's not being forced on you by forced on you by the job that you are called to do? Well, I, yeah. And I, I think so many people in our generation um, are trying to figure out how to be good people. When, Cause I feel like the, the stereotype of like an actor or a musician or someone who's out of, who's not on stage is like, you, you just easily fall into self-destructive patterns then because you're, you know, either you're, it's, it's the high of the audience or whatever that you're missing, or just that high, like you said, of that meditative trance, state of being so so present and so in the moment that then when you're not doing it it's easy to just be like well then i just want to get higher i want to get drunk right because that'll sort of maybe like do it like synthetically like a synthetic presence then yeah and so like um you know i'm i think for those of us who are trying to like do it a different way it's hard i mean it's really and look i understand how ridiculously privileged it sounds and there are very few people i can talk to about this where it's like Oh, the TV show you're on in such and such (laughs) amazing city. You only work two to three days a week and you don't know how to fill those other four to five days of the week. You, you jerk. Like, well, but okay. But to your credit though, you guys, you know, you and your wife just raised what 30,000, how much money did you raise for the Joe Biden campaign? Oh, I think in the end it was like over two hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah. my fucking! I'm like thirty thousand. Are you kidding? Two hundred thousand dollars. So you guys, and this was a lot of work. You guys did this campaign yeah. called Tie Dye In for Biden, or I don't know if you'd call it a campaign, whatever. Yeah, it was a it was a fundraiser, a campaign. Uh, uh, I mean, you could even call it a I don't know a movement. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We yeah we um we started making tie dye T shirts in our backyard during the pandemic. Um, like a lot of people were just for fun. And I, as I usually ought to do, I way overbought supplies and we had all this like really an absurd amount of like dye and (laughs) rubber bands and Ziploc bags and whatever. And so one of our friends, we were like, what do we, what do we do with all this? And someone said like, we should make tie dyes for Biden. And, um, uh, the way I usually tell the story is like, normally that would just be a funny joke at a backyard barbecue. But if you're married to my wife, who's intrepid and incredibly motivated hmm. the next day, it, there's an Instagram page and there's a Google doc and oh there's God, a, I fucking love her. I've never met her, but I love her so much. You guys have never met. That's, That's so crazy. crazy. Um, and she reads, yeah. she reads Pema children. Like I'm so into her. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, we, in the beginning, it kind of started out, <clears throat> 
it's just a thing that we were going to like make a couple hundred shirts in our backyard. And the only thing was you had to make a $25 donation to the Biden Harris campaign. And we would absolutely for free send you a tie dyed t-shirt that said Biden Harris, a one of a kind handmade t-shirt. And it just took off overnight. And um, we had way more orders than we could handle. So then we started um, asking if anyone wanted to volunteer. And we ended up having these, all these outposts across the country, strangers who volunteered on their own dime to also make t-shirts and ship them out to people. So we had about 50 outposts and I don't even remember how many shirts, but we ended up sending out thousands and thousands. Wow. Of shirts. And then we did the same thing for the Georgia runoff. Um, right. So yeah. That was incredibly but so just in terms of you not being like a person who gives back, I mean, and not only that, but like, and I don't know enough about your, the, the farm and like the, the, you guys are a place where like playwrights come up and, and, you know, actually, I really, I know very little about it, but, but like your, your life in many ways is actually founded around giving back to your community and like, you know, activism. And so I think you can give yourself that you know, the complaint that, you know, on those few days where you're out of town without your wife, without your house, without your fucking everything, and you don't know what to do with yourself, that it's frustrating. I think that's like a very, uh, that, that still is a sympathetic complaint for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's very kind of you. I mean, yes, we, my, my wife runs a place called Space on Rider Farm. Yeah, right. And I was going to mention that earlier, like sort of that piece of myself when I was younger that had community and like, weekly parties like Mondays with Chernus has now evolved. Yeah. It's become more formalized. Like we, we support about 150 artists a year on a 130 acre organic farm in upstate New York. And, um, but the thing I'll say about, I mean, I believe in all these things greatly, but I guess what I mean is with those kind of things, I can sort of hide, like I can, and there's nothing wrong in this, but I'm putting the focus on other people mm -hmm. on helping other people on giving back to creating community to, to giving back to charity or, or political things that I believe in or causes that I believe in. But I guess deep down what I mean is like, I sometimes don't know what I'm doing for myself. Mm -hmm. And there's an argument that can be made that that's ultimately for myself. It's for for a larger world that I want to envision living in, but like um, compulsive um, giving back can also be a way of like avoiding yourself. Sure. But I just like, I have to say like, and you know, you and I haven't been in a ton of touch in the last, I don't know how many years when <laughs> I was uh, like, you know, like fucking 12 years since we dated, right. Maybe longer or no, like 12, 11, 11 years. And we, yeah. I mean, we have been in touch, but not like, so much, so much, so much. So I don't really know about your life, but I will say this. Like, I, my wish for you is that, my wish for you is that there, that maybe there's a voice that says, hmm, what do I want to do today? I don't know what to do today. But that the voice that then says, fuck you for not knowing what you want to do today and how to fill your time, that that voice, that secondary voice, yeah. like, take a fucking hike, go to Starbucks. Would, you know I what I mean? Yeah. That's my wish for you because I think like, you know, when you can see if you, if you, if you can take a step back and really look at your life and the richness of it, 
I, I think like I would like you to give yourself a, a, a fucking break. You know what I mean? Because it's really beautiful stuff. And maybe you're sitting around in a fucking hotel room, just like jerking off all day or reading like, or watching reality TV or whatever the thing is like, that's enough. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's all you need. Maybe it's Thanks. enough. Maybe you are enough, like just as you are, you know, you can sit in a room by yourself and know how loved you are and, and how, and how much you've given back to the world. This has been a great session. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Dr. Foster. <laughs> um, I, um, I fucking adore you. And like, I, you know, I'm now looking through these notes. What's I, the moment on the street, so the moment on the street that like, I kind of wanted to fess up to that. Like I still cringe about it's like, and I don't remember Michael. I don't even remember what the fucking moment was. Um, maybe I do, but well, I remember what I said in the moment, but I don't remember why I said it, but we were, it was like, I remember exactly where we were. We were by that CVS on Avenue B and like Houston or, or is it Avenue A? Maybe it's A. I can't remember. There was like a drugstore, or maybe it's like C, by the way, but it's like right, like Houston or Second. And now it's like A, B, or C that I can't because I haven't. Yeah, I think you live careful. between like B and C. Yeah, it was like a, a Dwayne Reed yeah. or a CVS yeah. or something. And like, C. and I, and I just remember, and I don't, again, I don't remember the context, but there was this part of me that was like, I want power. I want power. I just want power. Like I want power, you know? And I like that in that moment was like, you know, it felt whatever. And I, again, like, I don't, do you remember that moment? Do you remember why I said that? I have no idea. And I'm sure there were many moments like that, but I want to <laughs> say to you, like what you just said, please let yourself off the hook for that. I mean, I don't remember it. And also, Oh, and when I remember when I said like, Oh, fuck. Remember when I was like, and I just want, why can't you just buy me a diamond? Yeah. I mean, we talked about money a lot. <laughs> I remember you saying like, I can picture you someday on a yacht with like a Rolex and I just yes, want you to I be remember that, that I think we were both trying to like push each other. Like we were kids. I mean, we weren't kids, but we were kids. And I think you were saying you want power because we had no power. I mean, it's easy to be older now and have the successes that we've had and been on TV shows and whatever. And like, but we had nothing then. Like you had just done a pilot. I had done mm -hmm. a few plays. Like, of course we wanted power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still want power. I mean, yeah. And totally. I, I don't remember that specific time, but I think this is the kind of stuff we were always talking about back then. Yeah, which is yeah, like, yeah. Although now, like now I really like, I, I do, I give myself a real bad rap for like that kind of thinking because that kind of thinking is really like fucked with me, like in such a major way. Like I've done so much work to combat that. Now, now, by the way, like you could interpret, you know, to, to give myself, to let myself off the hook. Like I can interpret that statement that I want power, I need power as an assertion of a fundamental human need, which is right. to be seen, heard, understood, you know, maybe that's what I meant when I said like, I want power, you know? So yes, yeah. we should all let ourselves off of, off the hook. And, um, you know, I was going to say something about earlier where, you know, you were talking mm -hmm. about like when you started acting and like, you know, getting the praise or getting the adulation or people clapping or whatever, like we are as actors, you know, we give ourselves 
any, every actor who's ever come on this podcast has had some shame about like, you know, when they were younger and they loved, you know, getting laughs and they loved the applause and like that's said with some degree of embarrassment. Um, but, but, and if I haven't said this before on this podcast, I'll say it now, like it is fundamental to, to being human, the desire to be seen and heard. Um, oh, and, completely. you know, and so it's like, we, you know, it's like, yeah, as actors, we get seen and heard, that's part of our job. And maybe that's part of what attracts us to this business when we're younger or whatever. But, you know, like my two-year-old, she says she all three times a day, I hear mommy, watch me, mm-hmm. mommy, watch me put the blanket over my head. She's yep. fucking sleeping with a blanket over her head. It drives me crazy, but she loves to sleep with the fucking blanket. And I say, don't sleep with the blanket over her head. And she says, I like it <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So I like I'm having heart attacks all night because like my daughter sees a fucking blanket over her head. But anyway, she, but she, watch me put the blanket over my head. Watch me put right. Sharon to bed. That's her doll. You know, right. like and and that's it, it's a really basic thing. And it, when she says it, it makes so much sense. And she has no shame over it. And I hope she never has shame over it. We want to be seen, you know. Right. Of course. So to to clarify. Um... For me, it wasn't even the applause necessarily. It was the attention of one person specifically. The first play I ever did was my father. Mm-hmm. And it's also because it was eighth grade. And so I was 13. And so I was just becoming a young man. And, um, you know, I just wanted my dad's approval and attention. And the first play I ever did was The Hobbit, a stage mm-hmm. adaptation of The Hobbit. And I played Gandalf. And, um, my first line as I walked on and saw Bilbo Baggins, I said, ah, the Shire, how delicious the morning is in this part of the world. The air is stuffed with comfort. And supposedly the story was that when I came on stage, I had this booming voice and I said, ah, the Shire. And my dad was like so moved that he like broke out into tears and, and that he was, you know, wrapped with attention of, with my performance. And he would come down for weeks after that to breakfast and say, ah, the Shire. Mm. And he still says, ah, the Shire sometimes. And it was this thing as a 13 year old, literally my father saying words that I had said on stage back to me, you know, it was the feeling of being seen and mm. heard and validated by the one person's attention that I wanted and was, and, and was striving for. And that by being on stage, he had to pay attention to me for two hours. Like mm-hmm. I had him and whoever else was in that audience was, a, was I had their attention and they had to be quiet and listen. Mm-hmm. And for me for so long, that was, that was it. Like, yeah, that was yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, Okay. So I think we're, I think we're probably gonna wrap, you know, we're starting to wind down and, but I, I do want to ask you, um, here's where I think maybe we'll end is, is, do you remember you also told me that thing, right? So you studied bass, right? You're, you play bass guitar yeah. and you studied bass and, um, you said something to me once about like how your teacher said, you know, uh, like, can you be playing bass while you're 
in line at the grocery store or something. Yeah. Do you remember this? Oh my God. I think about this all the time still. Yes. Mary Landon. Okay, good. Please talk about this. Cause I think this is like something that we can all walk away with so many things in this podcast. This has been such a beautiful episode, but like this, I think is like a really cool story and um, idea to end on. So my best friend, Patch Dara and I had been writing stoned songs for years at Juilliard. And, but for years it was just us like singing and him playing guitar. And so we wanted to start a band, but I didn't know how to play an instrument. So I said, I'm going to learn how to play bass. And you know, in New York, especially in like the late nineties, early two thousands, there would be like just pieces of paper and bodegas that would say, learn how to like Dan Smith teaches you guitar. Pull a tab with a phone number off. Well, there was always also this guy, Larry Landon will teach you the bass. (laughs) Every deli on eighth and ninth Avenue. And so I called Larry Landon and went up to his little apartment on ninth Avenue. And his whole thing was, um, was all about groove. Like you didn't need to learn how to play these complex bass lines. You could play like a note, two notes, three notes over and over again, as long as you were grooving. And what that meant or what I've interpreted to mean is just like, you're in it, you're in the pocket. When you are playing that one note, you are only playing that note. You are completely with all of your consciousness and you're being playing that note. And you're just in that groove. And and you could play that riff from just my imagination or whatever for hours, no matter, no matter what, how simple it was or whatever. And he eventually, when, when I started to groove a little bit with him, he would say, you need to be able to groove wherever you are. You're playing the bass, no matter where you are. You're not just playing the bass when you're here in my apartment, you're playing the bass when you're on the subway and grooving is all about relaxing. It's Mm -hmm. all about letting go and just letting go, sitting back in that groove and relaxing. So when the subway is not coming and it's not coming and you're late for that appointment, you just got to, you got to groove. You just got to, you got to relax and play the bass. And when you're at the grocery store and you're late and the old lady in front of you is paying with pennies from her coin purse and she's taking forever and she's counting out $5 worth of pennies, you're just, you're just playing just my imagination. You're just grooving, mm. you're just playing that bass line and that you're, you don't st- start playing the bass when you pick up the bass. You've been playing the bass for hours. You're Mm. coming to the instrument already grooving. Mm. And it's similar with acting. I feel like if you can be in that meditative, groovy, relaxed state, when you get in the van, when it picks you up to go to location and and you Mm -hmm. go into hair and makeup, you're already in the scene. You're already grooving. You're already listening. You're already present. You're already playing. You're already improvising. You're at the top of your creativity and ingenuity already then when they call action, you've already been doing it. Mm-hmm. You've been doing it for hours. You're just, yeah. you're... and can you just, this is the last question. Like, can we extend that metaphor to life? Yeah. I mean, I think relaxation is a lot of what I come back to. Like also if we're talking about a mantra, like an active relaxation, like I don't mean like, sloppy, lazy, but like whenever I get stressed and the cortisol's running and I'm getting anxious and angry, my shoulders go up and I'm just like holding on. And I'm, and I fuck so many things up just because I'm already, I'm ready for it to go wrong. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm just ready to yell at someone or to Mm. blame someone or, and if the more I can just be open and um, 
also kind of the improv thing of just, you know, like, let's be playful here. Like what maybe, you know, see what happens, see what happens. It doesn't always work out this way, but maybe the subway's late for a reason because I'm going to run into Cat Foster on the subway and we're going to have a great conversation. And then I get to that appointment and they're actually running behind and I'm right on time. And it's like when the more you can be in the flow, the more opportunities present themselves for, for things to happen. Um, yeah. 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 And that's, and the last thing I'll say when I was talking to my shrink and I was like, I'm going to go on this podcast and talk about spirituality and acting. And like the one thing he was like, well, what I think of is one of our first sessions, you know, I asked you about acting and like who you are. And you said, the only thing that I really know is that I think I have this, thing this talent this i feel like i have a gift that was somehow came from somewhere else mm -hmm. out in the universe and that my only real job is to sort of protect that mm. and to try to not fuck it up so that that thing can like live out mm. in almost like a child or a pet like to just my job is i am not the talent like i'm just the caretaker and the conduit for this thing mm. speak through me and sometimes i feel like the that the relaxing and the grooving and getting out of my way is just like it's not about me like get out of the way be the channel be the vessel be the conduit for like the other thing to move through you mm -hmm. um and that other thing if it's not acting could be any of the gifts that all of us have been given yeah, it might be the even the few lucid moments of wisdom that I've had in this conversation. Like, when can I like Absolutely. stop trying so hard and stop mm -hmm. wanting to be seen in a certain way mm. and stop wanting to be liked and stop wanting to be cool and stop wanting to win and stop wanting to be thin and wanting mm -hmm. like just just be. Mm. Just let it let it flow. Just play yes. the bass. Yes, just play the bass. Um, well, that's a beautiful place to end. That's so brilliant and so true. And I fucking adore you. I'm so glad to see your face. You Thank well. you. Thank you so much. All right. Let's stop recording. All right. That's our show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I am Kat Foster. Reach out to us using the hashtag ActingRealPod. We really, really get those messages and we really, really answer them. Links and recommendations for this week's episode can be found at ActingRealPodcast.com. Episodes drop on Mondays. Most importantly, if you love this show, please subscribe to it, rate it, review it. We love seeing those. It means a huge deal to the show. We're so grateful for you. We love you. Have a great day. This podcast was produced by the incredible Augusta Chapman with help from our amazing coordinator, Hannah Barbakoff, and our very talented sound engineer, Baraka Jenga. The music, which I absolutely adore, is composed by Sean Hokinson. 